want us to take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Judges, <clears throat> chapter 3, book of Judges, chapter 3, at verse 12. Let's hear the word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a savior, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit, roughly 18 inches, in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was very fat, a very fat man. That's very important to the story. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And he would came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And he was, he'd said to him, I have a message from God for you. And he, the king, rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came forth. Then Ehud went out into the porch closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sariah. Where he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. 
and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, there are some Bible stories that should come with a warning notice slapped on them, and this might well be one of them. Uh, Roger Ryan, who wrote his dissertation on the book of Judges, describes what we have here in this uh, story, uh, the story of a perfect murder. In Ryan's words, we're presented with a career-best performance of a lone Israelite who, with one hand behind his back and a little homemade wooden dagger in the other, commits the perfect murder. Now, what constitutes a perfect murder? A perfect murder involves the taking of a life by an unknown perpetrator when the act of murder is undiscovered and the death is thought to be by a natural cause. And that really is a description of what's going on in the story here. And in the story here, it's described really as one way to get rid of a tyrant. Now, it's at this point that some people get very nervous about this story. I will not reveal any names, but some ministers or staff here in the church, whenever I say I was going to preach on, on this, immediately went to Ehud and wondered how I was going to handle it. I told them then to wait and see. But obviously, they worried about this. And others, have, I, I realize, have worried about this. They hold up, people hold up their hands in horror at the deception and murder of this man. Well, my caution to you very early on this morning is don't be too quick to judge Ehud. You may just find yourself having an argument with God. It's interesting how we are happy enough to tell the story of David and Goliath, but we hesitate to tell the story of the day when Ehud met Eglon. It wasn't like when Harry met Sally either. Anyway, so this story, told at some length, is found in sacred Scripture. The Holy Scripture is inerrant. It is the final authority in the church, and its ultimate author is God, the Holy Spirit. That's what makes all Scripture God-breathed. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable, which means Even this story is profitable for you and I this morning. We don't get to vote what bits of the Bible offend our sensibilities as are unprofitable. We believe the whole Bible is true, even the bits that we find a bit dodgy. Well, let's recap for a moment. We've been introduced to the first of a series of judges, one of the major judges, uh, Othniel. Uh, He comes from a good family. He marries into a good family. He is uh, a kind of good guy, 
You know, he wears a three-piece suit on Sunday, does his hair, brushes his teeth, is acceptable in public society, to a measure at least. Othniel is kind of your straightforward savior of Israel. And he sets the pattern, really, for the rest. And there are seven features about Othniel that describe the savior of Israel. Here are the steps. First of all, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Second, God sells or gives Israel away into the hands of their enemies. Third, Israel cries out in their misery to the Lord. Fourth, God raises up a savior and sends him to them, him or her to them. Fourth, uh, fifthly, the Lord gives the enemy into the hands of the savior and the land has rest during the lifetime of the judge. And then seventh of all, the judge dies. Othniel, the model savior, has all of those characteristics. The only other judge in the book of Judges who has all of those seven characteristics is in fact Ehud, the one we'd least expect. That means that we're to take him seriously and however amusing and satirical the description of what happens to, uh, to this man Eglon, we are to imagine that this is being read by Israelites who have been tormented by this man for 18 years and who will find the story to be a hilarious, hilarious description of the downfall of a desperate tyrant. So I have three points this morning, and the first point is this. A big, fat tyrant. A big, fat tyrant. So the story begins with the same old, same old. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is going to be repeated over and over again. Do you know it's repeated all over the Old Testament? It's repeated all over the New Testament. It's repeated every day in your life and mine, isn't it? We revert back to sin. Sin is something that we never quite escape. It's the story of your life, my life, the church's life. It's been the story of the last several thousand years of God's dealings with his people. We can't avoid it. That's why we confess our sins Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. And we receive the forgiveness of God again and again and again. Israel... Israel's forever doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and God is forever sending a Savior because he loves them. And we must remember that for our own sakes as well. Also, the cycle is this, that when the judge dies, the people seem to lose their way. Now, in the time of the judges, of course, we don't have any prophets going around, or many of them going around teaching the people. The judge not so much preaches the word of God as he executes the word of the Lord. He puts it into practice. But he does represent the word of God. And he applies the word of God by doing it, by getting on with the job. And I think this... uh, it manages to help us consider the difference between what we'll call teaching sometimes and, and preaching. Let me, let me quote, first of all, from Johannes Brent's 
uh, one of the early reformers, wherever the law and the word of God are not driven home, that is, they're not applied, put into action, then all kinds of shameful acts are likely to abound. Now, that's a good statement that explains the difference between teaching and preaching. How do I describe teaching? Well, teaching is someone who is describing what the text means and what the Word of God says. The goal of teaching is understanding. They want you to understand what this passage is teaching, what it's saying. And, uh, and we need that kind of thing to be going on all the time, teaching. Preaching, on the other hand, involves teaching. It, we want understanding, of course. But preaching goes beyond understanding. Preaching presses the matter. Preaching drives it home. Teaching, preaching applies the word to the given circumstances of our day or time. Preaching addresses. You think of the prophets of Israel later on in the Bible when God is sending prophets. Whereas the judges deal with the issue at hand. They, they put everything else aside and they deal with the issue at hand. The prophets deal with the issue at hand and they apply the word of God to Israel in its sin and disobedience. So minus a judge, minus a savior who presses the word of God and puts it into action, the people forget God. Hearts harden, idols beckon, faith falters, sin reigns. And that's what we find in verse in these verses before us. Four times we have in the Hebrew, Eglon, Melech, Moab. Eglon, the king of Moab, which is pushing in the faces of the Israelites their memories of Moab when they left Egypt and were in the wilderness for 40 years. And the Moabites, who were their great opponent, it's putting that in the faces of the Israelites, Eglon, Melech, Moab. He has come and he has destroyed the armies of Israel. He's subjugated the people of Israel. And God uses that. God uses that man's ambitions to be a ruler and a leader and an oppressor. He uses that man's evil ambitions And he uses him as an instrument to discipline and to even punish Israel for their forgetting God. And the man didn't do it all on his own. He needed God's assistance. You notice that. It says that the Lord strengthened this man. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. I don't know whether he lacked courage to do it. We know he wanted to do it, but did he lack courage? Did he need more resources? God strengthened him, made it possible for him to carry out his action against Israel. God God did not make him sin. God did not make him want to do evil to Israel. He did that already for himself, and God merely let him do it. He needed a kickstart. 
And whatever else you understand today, I want you to make this clear, that though Eglon and his collaborators will serve as God's instrument for punishing and disciplining Israel, they are all of them, Moabites, Amalekites, and Amorites, all of them are Israel's sworn enemies. They are the God's enemies. None of them have any natural right to the sacred land, and they have no natural right to oppress God's people there. And I think something, something strikes us here, and that is that the ungodly, even when they don't get on with one another, will find themselves coming together and conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed. So it was this confederacy then that captured Jericho, the city of Pams, it's mentioned here. Jericho, which was the first city that Joshua, remember, uh, captured, and he did so without lifting a sword or firing a bullet or a cannon or anything, because they didn't have bullets and cannons, that's why. But God himself gave the city to Israel. And now for 18 long years, Israel has suffered while Eglon literally grows fat off the taxes he raises from the Lord's people, raking in the money. He is, uh, he is exercising a, a tyrannical hold, tyrannical hold over the people of Israel. Now Israel, the author, the Israelite author rather, cannot help but contrast Eglon's name with Eglon's physiology. His name, Eglon, means little lamb. But the text, you'll note, draws our attention to his corpulence. He was very fat. He had rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls of fat. What comes to mind immediately is Jabba the Hutt, if you've ever seen the Star Wars movie. Uh, this, and, and I remember Jabba the Hutt very well because one of our sons tended to call his sister Jabba the Hutt without any foundation or reason in existence. And I asked her if I could tell you that. And she said, it's okay. She's got over it. She went into therapy for years, but she's managed to <laughs> deal with it all, all together. I mean, it was just, she, he was just teasing her, of course, which is a Golliger tray, which I didn't inherit. Anyway, uh, so what we read about, this is what we read about Jabba the Hutt. Resting his grotesque and greasy body on the throne, with cruel little eyes, he delights to torture his victims and humiliate his subjects. That just about fits. Jabba Eglon in our text. Another reformer, Johannes Brentz, asks the question, why does God afflict his people more than the ungodly? And he gives the answer, because the word of the Lord was in Israel. Therefore, those who sinned against the word were afflicted to confirm to outsiders that the God who was preached in Israel was the true God, and that his word is the word of God. So we have a big, fat tyrant. 
And then secondly, we have a left-handed Savior. You'll notice our attention is drawn to Ehud. The Lord raised up a Savior. That should dismiss any fears you have about Ehud's qualifications. The Lord raised up a Savior. This is God's response to his disobedience. People cry for of anguish. One of the things we want to learn again and again is God's people sin. God's people cry to God. God sends a Savior. Of course, he doesn't do that today because he sent the Savior. But it's the same story of us. We sin again and again and again. We cry to God. And God assures us of salvation. God brings his salvation to bear upon your life and my life. He speaks his word into our self-awareness of being sinners. And he brings the joy of his salvation to you. One of the great blessings, isn't it, of the gospel? Well, the Lord raised up Ehud to be a savior who would single-handedly restore, remove the oppressor and usher in a period of peace that would last for 80 years. You think of the period, I can't, but you might, from the end of the Second World War to today. I think there's only two more years before we celebrate the end, three more years before we celebrate the end of the Second World War. All that period of time was the period of time that was granted to Israel after the ministry of Ehud. And once again, just as we were uh, drawn our attention to the physiology of Eglon, he's a very fat tyrant, now we're, our attention is drawn to Ehud and his physiology. He had a right hand that was bound. He was crippled in his right arm. He could not use his right arm. That, that's the way it's put. And that's why we call him a, a left-handed man. So wherever he went, you could see that his right arm didn't work. Now, you think of the way in which the right arm is used in the Bible. By the way, it doesn't really matter whether you're right-handed or left-handed. Don't you worry about that today. That's not what we're going to be discussing today. But in the Bible, God has a strong right hand to save his people. This man had this issue with his right arm. I mean, if he, if he was uh, applying for the job of being the savior and rescuer of Israel and you saw his resume and you found he didn't have a, his right arm didn't work, that would disqualify him for being a savior, wouldn't it? And yet here it is, God calls not a five-star general on this occasion, but a left-handed assassin. So here's the story. On the one hand, you have a sumo wrestler, Jabba, Eglon, And on the other hand, you have this left-handed nobody from the smallest tribe in Israel. Ehud had been called of God before anyone else knew. Providentially, he had been selected to carry Israel's tribute to Eglon. Why had he been chosen? Well, he'd probably been chosen because he was no threat to anybody. You could send him into the palace and nobody would would go sky, you know, go overboard worrying that this might be a traitor or a terrorist who was coming in. 
And so he was chosen to take the tribute. Now you think, when you think tribute, think coin, think livestock, think produce. He's taking these things in as, a, as evidence that these people had already succumbed to thinking of themselves as slaves, thinking of themselves as under the oppression of this man. They owed him this tribute which he brought to them. How humiliating this was for Israel. He who had just chosen to deliver the tribute. And then we find the story beginning to unfold. So let's pay attention to the story now. Here's the heart of the story. Ehud leads the delegation. The delegation are carrying the tribute, there's a lot of it, to Eglon. After they've delivered it, he goes with them outside the city a little way to a hillside where there are monuments that they all knew. He separates himself from those who'd been with him and he makes his way back into the city and he says to them at the gate that he has a message for the king. Previously, Ehud had made a dagger, probably out of wood. He had prepared it, both sides, double-edged. It didn't have a cross piece, just a handle. And he conceals it under his robes on his right side. Now, why was it made of wood? So it didn't set off the alarm when it went through the metal detector. <laughs> it was in this right side. You see, in those days, if you had a sword or a weapon, you would have it on the left side. If you got patted down going in there, they would see the man's right hand didn't work. So they would have patted, wouldn't have patted him down here. They wouldn't have patted him anywhere. They would have thought, this guy, kind of a sword, but we'll just check out. No, there's nothing there. Fine, through, you go. So Ehud gets in, and he has a sword hidden. He has acted all friendly like to the king, so he has left a good impression on Eglog. Do you know, I am going to say this, Eggnog. This guy's Eglon. He returns alone to see Eglon and he has announced that he has a message for the king. The king's very interested. He calls for silence. He tells his attendants to leave. They leave. Eglon moves into a private room, possibly the toilet, and Ehud follows uh, and tells him a bit more about this message. He says, I have a message from God for you. He uses a generic name for God. I have a message from God for you. At this, Eglon tries to get up, struggles to get up onto his feet out of a superstitious reverence for whatever deity Ehud is speaking about. And it's from there Ehud takes it. As Eglon struggles to his feet, Ehud reaches his left hand over to his right side, produces his dagger, thrusts it upward into the king's belly through the folds of fat and flesh 
until the flat and the flesh entirely engulf this instrument, disappears from view, and his liquid feces evacuate his body as he falls to the floor. That's the story. Ehud doesn't hesitate. He locks the door to the room. He makes his escape, all James Bond-like, through the patio doors out onto the veranda, puts his belt over a wire that's suspended and goes sailing down to the ground, gets out the city gates and off into the countryside. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the bodyguards have got back from their coffee break to find the door locked. It's very interesting, this story here. There's one word that occurs again and again and again. It's a, a word of surprise. Sometimes in the Bible it's translated by the word to behold, which means, look at that, big surprise-like. You've not seen this before. You ready for this? And so three times that's used. This is what it says. I'll put my hand up whenever the, the word is used. And they looked. And Why? The doors of the upper chamber were locked. So they said to one another, he's surely covering his feet, that is, using the restroom. So they waited to the point of shame till they were embarrassed. And still, surprise, he was not opening the doors of the upper chamber. Then they took the key, they opened the doors, and surprise, there he was, their master, fallen to the ground, dead, They didn't even suspect murder. Everything is unexpected in this story. And the Israelites, listening to the story being told, would by this point be rolling in the floor laughing because they have more of a sense of humor than you have, and and would be thinking about those guards pacing around, you know, unsure what to do, afraid to open the king's, go into the king's chamber, afraid they themselves might get into trouble or be beheaded or whatever the punishment was for intruding in the king's privacy and so on. Meanwhile, in all of their dithering, Ehud is making good his escape, and he's gathering Israel, and he's gathering Israel to a decisive victory, and they had no idea what was going on. You know, if there's anybody immoral in this story, it's Eglon for making slaves of God's people and oppressing them and demanding tributes. It's not Ehud. Ehud is not acting as a private citizen. Now today, today, if, if a Christian person were to go and murder someone and say God told them to do it, you would know that they were off their head, send them to the psychiatrist and see if he would be any good with them, because God doesn't speak to us now the way he spoke to them then. God speaks to Israel in a different way then. We now have the Bible, and all he has to say to us is in the Bible. So we wouldn't do that today. Be, be very cautious of those who would suggest it. He had truly had a message from God For Eglon, he wasn't lying to him or deceiving him. The message from God was this. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Every tyrant will fall. 
all the oppressors of God's covenant people will ultimately be brought down low. And in the end, Satan, the super tyrant, he himself will be crushed by the final Savior when he comes. Here's how Goslinga puts it. Ehud came forward to uphold the rights of God and to take vengeance on his behalf against the Moabites and their king, even though the Moabites were the Lord's instrument for disciplining and punishing Israel. They still remained his enemies and had no right to occupy his sacred land and oppress his sacred people. You may not warm to Ehud. You may not admire his ingenuity or his willingness to risk all in God's behalf. But God often uses unexpected people, even unsuitable people, to do his work in the world. Peter, the impetuous, James and John, the hotheads, Simon, the extremist. It seemed that Israel did not recognize their Savior until after he had slain Egnon. Now we look at we look at we look at Ehud, and it's untidy, isn't it? He's not attractive. But even our real Savior wasn't attractive. He had no former comeliness that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. God works in a different way than we do in the world. Even with his church, look at us. Look at us. You know yourself, I know myself, we know ourselves. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are nothing to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the principle by which God reigns and works in the world. And so our third point, a big fat tyrant, a left-handed savior, an ever-surprising God. It's the unexpectedness of the story that is put there by God and that actually draws our attention back to God. The very unexpectedness of everything that has happened. God uses this event to bring about a period of 80 years of relief from Oppression for Israel. Eighty years, double what God gave under Othniel. And then you have this last character, Shamgar. We don't know anything about him. He may not even have been an Israelite by nature, maybe by adoption, but not by nature, because his name Shamgar is a kind of pagan name that's used in the vicinity, or else his parents just liked pagan names and gave him a pagan name. But we know nothing about him. All we know is this. Look at those last two words. He saved Israel. He saved Israel 
with an ox goad, a long spear-like instrument pointed at one end with a shovel thing at the other end. And the oxen would be pulling the, the, uh, the plow along, and if it hesitated, it might get a little prod with the pointy end, or maybe a little tap to stop so that he could use the, the, the shovel end to shovel the soil or whatever. That was the instrument he used. And with that one instrument, he killed 600 Philistines. God has t- t- taken and used these two men. We don't know really uh, how God does this. He picks really odd people. I remember speaking at a university in the north of England, and on my way into the university, going up the stairs, I, I looked over across the street, and I, I saw this building, very posh building. And over the building, it, it said, the Royal Ancient Order of Oddfellows. The Royal Ancient Order of Oddfellows. And I thought, that would be a great name for a church. <laughs> but you know, that's what God uses, the ancient order of oddfellows. He uses odd people to achieve his purpose. You can't, God says to us, you can't pin me down. I will save you in whatever way it takes to save you. However unconventional you may think, the way is that I will save you. I will save you even when you see my Savior pinned to a cross in shame and in agony, when you think all is lost, that's when I will save to the uttermost all those who come to God by the ultimate Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, if you feel that you've sinned way more than you can ever believe God would pardon, I want you to remember the Savior the Savior. Put your trust in Him. He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by Him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that today you would give us great joy in knowing that you're on the throne and that you do what pleases you and that you please to save your people when we call out to you in our weakness and our sin our failure and your grace goes on. You persevere with us. Your grace goes on. What a wonderful God. Well, Lord, will you receive our worship this morning and our gratitude in Jesus' strong name. Amen.